0: Yeah, leading up to the pandemic, I suppose, I was kind of grimly monitoring the situation because yeah, after the season we just had, it seemed like a, uh, I don't know, a bit of a cruel joke. So to put it in context, we just lived through five, you know, so-called once-in-a-lifetime events over the previous year. So we had storms, uh, drought, bushfires, flood, and um, throwing a grasshopper plague for good measure.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Honeybees. Without them, we wouldn't be here. They're the world's most important pollinator of food crops. One third of the food we consume each day relies on pollination, mainly by bees. But with drought, bushfires, floods, and a pandemic, what has the impact been on bees and the purest of ingredients, honey? Tim Malfroy is one of Australia's best honey producers and owner of Malfroy's Gold. Tim, how are you going?
0: I'm good, mate. How are you?
1: I'm good, thank you. Um, it's been a pretty crazy period of time for for all of us, but also producers in Australia that have had to deal with the elements leading up to the pandemic. Can you tell us what it's been like uh, for you, um, with the bushfires and the drought and the floods leading up to the pandemic.
0: Sure. Yeah, it was um, – yeah, leading up to the pandemic, I suppose, I was kind of grimly monitoring the situation because, yeah, after the season we just had, it seemed like a uh, – I don't know, a bit of a cruel joke. So to put it in context, we just lived through five, you know, so-called once-in-a-lifetime events Over the previous year, so we had storms, uh, drought, bushfires, flood, and um, throw in a grasshopper plague for good measure. (laughs) Wow. Uh, (laughs) So it's easy to rattle them off like that, but each one of those events was the most extreme version in recorded history. Um, We also had a family illness with our newborn last year who was in and out of hospital for four months. So it's been... Yeah, a roller coaster ride, and um, I hate roller coasters. So, yeah, we've been we've been dealing with one thing after the other, um, and then the virus started overseas. And um, I, I think the first thing that we noticed was tourists stopped visiting the Blue Mountains. Um, that's when we knew it was going to have a big impact on top of everything else we'd been dealing with. So that was probably around the end of January, maybe. Um, which is usually a pretty busy time for us in terms of honey sales, uh, and the bushfires had already had such a big impact on on visitation to the mountains, um, and they weren't the fires weren't really kind of officially contained. I mean, they weren't put out; they were just contained in in mid January, and then so it was really one thing after the other, or well, rolling into the other, or they overlapped because then the flooding kind of followed that. So we had, yeah, we had them all happening all at once at one point.
1: What impact does it have on, on what you do?
0: Oh, well, there's there's kind of direct direct impacts in terms of uh, the main fire in the Blue Mountains, the Gospers Mountain Fire, which ended up becoming the largest fire ever recorded in Australia. That we were, uh, where that started out in the Wallumai Wilderness is right near some of our key apiaries, so we were, kind of scrambling for maybe 12 weeks in total, just trying to move apiaries out of out of the fire front, working with RFS and um, and property owners and, you know, getting in there, raking apiaries, around apiaries, I should say, and, and uh, relocating apiaries. Some of them we, we didn't get to in time. Um, yeah, so then, the fire moves through. We did have some losses, but because of the work that we'd put in, we managed to save uh, pretty much everything. Some of them were saved, you know, by emergency backburns and some were saved by water-bombing aircraft. So it got pretty hairy there. Um, but it, I think just the scale of the fire and the, 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 length, the length of the fire, like how long it burnt for, was, uh, was kind of distressing and went on for such a long time and uh, obviously you have the direct impacts of potentially losing, um, you know, colonies um, and apiaries to the fire, but then there's indirect effects that that follow it in terms of loss of forage um, for the bees. And the one that we noticed was just the, uh, most of our retail markets in the Blue Mountains, people visiting the mountains and, and, and buying the honey we produce, and that just disappeared overnight. And then following that was the was the the virus which really kind of had a had a huge impact so it was kind of waves of uh you know waves of problems i suppose and um yeah the only thing that was really keeping us going uh after all that was the the restaurant trade in sydney where most of our wild honeycomb is sold uh and so once that was shut down yeah, we, we we were down about ninety percent or something in February in terms of sales. So um, the only thing I will say is that honey never spoils, so uh, we can we can sit on honey; it never never goes off. So I really feel for the producers that have a perishable product. At least we're in the position where we can just um, leave the honey on the hives, um, which is what we've done a lot of uh, at the end of this season, or or we, um, anything that we've harvested can just be kept in storage so
1: there there is that benefit with with honey but um financially is that something that you wouldn't be able to do for a long period of time
0: uh we run a fairly kind of low-cost business it's we don't have any employees it's just uh you know myself uh, my wife emma and and uh and two children and and that's it so it's we're able to kind of hunker down it's winter now we just we've got one more day of beekeeping and and then we're into winter and and we'd have we're just at home kind of doing winter work which is you know um melting beeswax and and um, making making beehives we make our own hives from salvage timber and bottling honey so we can kind of just hunker down and uh get on with that work at home and hopefully as things kind of open up again uh, you know looking at you know september october then things will just gradually pick up from there. So, yeah, but it has been – things are going really well for us, so it has been a little bit shocking to kind of see um, after dealing with a whole season of of problems kind of uh, in the field, you know, with the beekeeping, um, to have the market kind of shut down
1: afterwards was – yeah, that was pretty difficult. So you partake in natural beekeeping. Can you tell us what that is?
0: Sure. So natural beekeeping is, is a bit of a, an oxymoron because as soon as you keep bees, you take that first step away from it being entirely natural because it's, you know, it's important to understand that bees are, uh, don't need humans. Um, they're a wild species that have been you know, thriving um, for millions of years without humans. But what natural beekeeping aims to do is mimic how bees have done that um, for so long um when i i mean my father's a professional beekeeper i was i was raised in a bee shed i've grown up around bees um my whole life but what i realized when i started my own honey label was that not so what much with my father who's very very natural in how he does conventional beekeeping but the rest of the industry was was going pretty hard in a very kind of industrial kind of direction so the needs of the bee colony um and the wants of the beekeeper were drifting further and further apart so i really wanted to come up with a style of apiculture that was um more about the bees the health of the bees Um, so we all know that you know kind of bees are in trouble around the world but it's very rarely spoken about um the type of hive that's used the style of beekeeping that's practiced as being a, a factor uh, as you know, as to why that they're they're struggling kind of health wise. So natural beekeeping is really based on five kind of core principles, which is letting the bees build uh, all their own comb. All honey in Australia, um, apart from the stuff we produce, is produced on artificial comb or plastic comb. Um, letting the bees reproduce naturally or swarm. Um, uh, natural foods, so letting the bees just winter on their own stores. I mean, they collect um, nectar and pollen to turn into honey and bee bread, but they do that for themselves. Um, that's their their kind of perfect food. So we don't feed the bees anything. So it's kind of like zero inputs into the hive. Um, no chemicals. So we don't use any chemicals at any stage of the process. And minimal intervention. So... It's important to use a style of hive that mimics a, a tree hollow and mimics what bees do in nature so that you know you have minimal intervention. In the hive you allow the bees to make all the decisions. Um they're better at making decisions than humans are.
1: So this natural process that you're talking about that you do to produce the honey, what what, what is the resulting um product of of your work? How does it differ to other types of honey?
0: Yeah, so it's um, we have a few different types of of products. The the one that we were supplying mostly into the restaurants in Sydney is is wild honeycomb. So people ask like, why why is it wild honeycomb? What's the difference? Um, the short answer is that um, wild honeycomb or wild honey has to come from wild bees. So we don't we don't breed bees. The bees are actually collected from wild swarms in the Blue Mountains. Um, and then the apiaries are located in a wild environment. We don't move the apiaries; They're located in one one place to produce like a terawatt honey. And then they have to be in a wild type hive. And that usually means a, a natural comb hive. So the wild honeycomb is, is produced entirely by the bees from scratch. We don't give the bees anything other than the little wooden sections to, to produce the honeycomb on a particular honeyflow, which is a, you know, a flowering event that may last you know weeks or, or months. And uh, yeah it's got a very pure flavor, it's very delicate texture and um, the other product we produce that's gained a little bit of attention is the post- brood honey, which can only be produced from the, the worry hives that we use, and that is aged in the hive for about four to five years. So most honey is produced in a, in a kind of three- or four-week window, I suppose. But this honey is, uh, is part of the, the nadiring process that's unique to worry beekeeping and it, it comes up through the brood nest so it takes on the, um, the essence of the bee colony as well as the surrounding environment. So that honey is actually doesn't taste like normal honey. It's quite a different, different product. It's very kind of rich. Uh, resinous complex honey; it's got high medicinal activity, and um, yeah, part of that comes from the aging aging process as it comes through the hive. Part of it comes from the environment where the apiary is located.
1: Do you choose the location of the hives, or do the bees choose it for you?
0: Uh, that's a good question. No, we we cho- we do choose the locations because. We need to be able to access the locations. We only use a, a, a Ute, like a four-wheel drive Ute, so I can access uh, really isolated locations in the Blue Mountains. They're all on, you know, dirt tracks and hard to get to. So um, we pick places that. I mean, I grew up in the area, so I, I know that I know the area well. And, and part of being a, a professional APRS is you really need to know the the flora of the area. You know what what things are flowering at what times, um, what causes them to flower, the different climatic events that cause certain things to flower, the budding cycles. Um, And that's kind of challenging because in the Blue Mountains there's, you know, there's over a hundred species of of just eucalypt trees, let alone all the understory and and other things that are flowering. So we pick uh, different areas for different reasons. Um, so we have apiaries in the lower Blue Mountains um, and the Upper Blue Mountains, which is quite quite different. And then in the Central Tablelands, where we produce the uh, yellow box and red stringy bark in the kind of vast high country woodlands out here. So they all they all produce or uh, result in very distinct kind of different honey varieties.
1: What is it that makes good honey?
0: Um, well. If you're kind of entering honey into to shows and things like that there's a, there's kind of a judging you know, regime you have to go along with but we don't enter them anymore because our, our honey doesn't fit into any of the into any of the criteria so because um, it's just too different. So I think good honey has to I mean honeys perfect in the hive I mean it's a perfect food. the bees make it perfectly. Uh, so the less you do to it, Uh, the better it is i mean honey is only degraded uh you know from as as you take it out of the hive and start processing it so part of our job is to is to do as little as possible so that's why the wild honeycomb is so satisfying because there's really no human hands have really been involved in in producing it's produced entirely by the bees and uh we just remove the wooden frames and and send them straight to Sydney to the restaurant. So I think that's that's part of it. The purity is really part of it. Um, in terms of quality, then I think producing a honey that is produced in a hot, dry climate is, is very good for quality. So you have a nice thick honey that's concentrated and, and full of flavour and aroma. So um, we certainly have hot and dry here. So Australian honey is very high quality.
1: With all of these... Um natural events happening like floods and bushfires um, and the drought, you know, what has been the impact on bees and and how important are they?
0: Yeah, so the impact, uh, I think the drought, I think the impact is everything that happens inside inside a hive is a reflection of what's happening outside the hive. So that means that things like drought, uh, I know out here in the central tablelands drought got so bad here um, that woodlands were just were just dying. I mean, it was they were just uh, I hadn't seen it before here they were just uh, whole woodlands were dying in in a matter of days and they are regenerating now after some recent rain. but people used to comment to me that they thought that they'd been burnt in a bushfire because that that's what they looked like they'd they'd completely um defoliated. so that places stress on the bees obviously there's a lack of uh, there's multiple stresses on the environment which then leads to uh, multiple stresses on the bees and nutrition is everything to to bee colonies so as soon as uh, as nutrition gets poor um then the bees will start breaking down with 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 pests and diseases so um part of Part of what I'm doing with the natural beekeeping and, and, and using wari hives and permanent apiaries is try to build resilience into the bees, uh, using the bees that are locally adapted to the area and can deal with these kind of, uh, you know, long droughts and uh, periods of, of difficulties. So, And that, that's actually worked out quite well for us because in, uh, in other areas the bees haven't been able to cope with those changes. Um, in terms of their importance i mean they all bees are hugely important uh, i know honeybees get the really do get the credit a lot of the time but you know in sydney there's like over 300 species of of native bees most of them are solitary although there is a uh, the tetragonula uh, carbonaria bee which is the social social bee um, that's endemic to the sydney basin so there's a huge amount of of work uh, in the environment that's done by all types of bees and those bees are coming under threat from everything from you know pesticides to urbanization to the industrialization of agriculture um, along with all these you know climate change related events that are occurring more and more frequently so um, I hope that answers your question but yeah I mean they are important and um, and they are, under, they are under stress, but the stress comes from um, you know, we have a lot of people contacting us wanting to help the bees, but keeping bees is not really, um, you know, getting a hive and keeping bees is, is not that important actually in terms of helping the bees. Uh, I think where you buy your food and who you support in terms of um, the food supply chain. And the type of farmers or producers that you're purchasing from, um, getting out there and planting um, trees and shrubs if you've got a garden, um, is far more important than actually having a hive yourself.
1: Now we kind of know the importance for our own um, food industry of, of of bees, and the role that they play. But you know, you've got a lot of work workmates in the form of bees. You know, what what do you find amazing about bees?
0: Well, I mean there's so there's, I mean, there's so much. I could tell them how long have we got. I've got we you know
1: <laughs> As long as you want.
0: <laughs> Don't ask a beekeeper about how much they love bees. I mean, you know, you'll never get them off the phone. I mean it's um I suppose for me it's uh it's something really humbling to work with with honeybees. They're so resilient and um so ancient. You're working with a super organism so they're kinda of endlessly fascinating to work with um particularly with the natural beekeeping that we do you get to see that in in kind of full flight um because you're you're letting them do what they've done for millions of years so yeah i mean i every day is amazing you you get to see amazing things and uh, and they're kind of i don't know they're the central thread of my life kind of from birth onwards so it's 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 not really work in the typical sense and um and the other thing i will say is it's not for me it's not just about the bees even though that um that they're just uh, amazing to work with it's it's where the bees live so it's getting getting to spend our lives in these beautiful wilderness locations um in the australian landscape is is just so great and um australian landscape is so incredible and unique and i think we as a country kind of take it for granted Uh, a lot of the time. So, yeah, I think those two things. And then, you know, at the end of that, a food arrives that's the culmination of the bees and the landscape together like a snapshot of a flowering event that might not be repeated, you know. So bees gather nectar from millions of blossoms and, you know, magically transform it inside the colony into a medicinal food with amazing flavour that never spoils. So it's something... To live for
1: you know it's getting a little bit colder we're moving into winter you know what happens to the hives and <laughs> the bees during this period
0: yeah so in a in a cool climate like uh like canberra and the central tablelands the, <laughs> the bees um the bees go into a state of uh DARPA, so they there's kind of a little bit like hibernation i mean they're still flying they fly above um, let's say eight to ten degrees. If you've got wild wild bees, and so there will be a little bit of flight activity, but in cold climates, um, they the queen stops laying. They go broodless. Um, there's very little food in the environment for them, and the da- the days are cold and short. So um, yeah, they don't kind of put their energy into into gathering food. They put their um, energy into conserving heat because. Because they're not just a warmth, uh, sorry, a super organism, they're a warmth organism too. So they have to, they use the honey as their fuel source to keep warm over winter. So it's, in this part of the world, it's a fairly quiet time for bee work. Although in the lower Blue Mountains, uh, you know, on the eastern side of the Blue Mountains, it's much warmer and the bees will kind of continue, um, you know, breeding and and continuing on through the winter months. So um, yeah, we'll start up again down there in, in, in August probably.
1: With all of these natural events and then the pandemic, you know, how, how have you felt through this period? And do you think you'll change what you do moving forward?
0: That's a good question. I've been thinking about that um, recently, and it, it seems strange to say this, but our model, uh, you know, kind of business model is, or beekeeping model really is as diverse and resilient as it can be um purely because when we when we started in 2006 like I was reading kind of w- widely around the topic of, of climate change and um, you know the Tim Flannery books Bill McKibben books uh, Clive Hamilton's Requiem for a species and so all these all these kind of things that have happened this season um, you know it's kind of been well understood and predicted what was coming um, and just, from our sense, we could see the weather, weather patterns changing and the bush and flowering patterns responding in different ways to the changing climate. So in that sense, um, what we kind of planned for it had, had worked. I, suppo- I suppose the scale of the fires and the floods really took everyone by surprise um, this year. Uh, in terms of the pandemic, um I don't know. I mean, that definitely wasn't wasn't in the in the beekeeping model, but that's something that um, you know. I think the the tourist areas that that really rely on people kind of coming in and, and, and spending up big, and the Blue Mountains is one of those areas for sure. I think will kind of suffer pretty bad um, over the next kind of year or so. So um, that's something to kind of rethink, and hopefully um, there'll be some more you know, visitors, uh, you know, from Sydney and from, from local areas, if, if anything, hopefully, I don't know, that uh, people will kind of put a bit more um, precedence on, you know, travelling around Australia when, when kind of restrictions lift and, and you know, maybe even looking at supporting local businesses and, uh, and producers rather than relying on, you know, imported stuff which has been shown to be, you know the supply chain and everything's been shown to be pretty flaky. So um, I don't know. There's something I'm I'm pretty passionate about. You know, like um, when you buy stuff from a local producer, the resilience is free. You know, the future resilience. So I hope that's something that comes out of it uh, afterwards. That there's a bit of a push um, for those kind of initiatives.
1: Well, those restrictions are sort of starting to ease, and you know, at the beginning of June, people in New South Wales will be allowed to travel again, and restaurants will be allowed to have more people in them, still with social distancing. Um, do you think that's going to have a positive impact for for you and what you do and and the area you're in immediately?
0: No, I don't, I don't think immediately it will. I think it'll take. I think it'll take a long time. Um, uh, yeah, there was, I was speaking to an operator in, at at Katoomba and they have already told me that they won't open till October. So I think I'm not sure whether that's the same with some restaurants. Maybe they're putting people on JobKeeper and and just waiting till that finishes. Um, and with with visitors, there was an article the other day about you know people in the Blue Mountains being a little bit concerned about. Lots of people visiting, so I think the time has to be right um for people to kind of come out in 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 you know quantity or whatever to to the regional areas, so we're happy to just wait wait and see what happens. We don't need it to go back um, zero to a hundred you know straight away. I think uh you know gradual reopening as people get get used to it over time is probably wiser and you know maybe more beneficial in the long run even though there's a lot of people hurting out there but look that's just my own opinion uh, lots of people have different opinions on this so
1: <laughs> so you got a very very unique product and something that most people probably haven't experienced in regards to a honey experience anyway um how, how can people get your honey and and see what it's like for themselves
0: well we do have through the um through the pandemic, we've had some great, um, great shops in Sydney that we've, we've supplied for a long time that have been supporting us and they've been doing a great job. So uh, it's kind of only available in Sydney at the moment. Um, uh, Feather and Bone, I'll give a shout out. They've been absolutely amazing and done a great job supporting all their artisan producers. Um, uh, Iggy's Bread have the honey and, you know, and our distributor in Sydney, Two Providence, have done an amazing job and they've been so good to work with. Um, uh, otherwise, we do have an order form on the website that people can, we've always been able to supply people directly through Australia Post, interstate. Often people visit the Blue Mountains or Sydney and try the honey and and uh, and, and want to get it when they go back home. So, yeah, we can we can post to you as well.
1: What do you think are some of the positives to come out of this situation that we're all in?
0: I don't know. I mean, um,
1: we're not out of it
0: yet. I think it's uh, it's, uh, it's it's every day it seems to be new information and goalposts keep changing. I know it's we're in a really lucky situation in Australia that things are um, restrictions are starting to ease a little bit. Um, I don't know what I mentioned before about. At least with the with the hospitality hospitality sector, I think if if um, if there is a return to I don't know, like a, a deeper connection between the chefs and the producers, um, and it's more transparent in that sense, and that restaurants are I don't know, keen to relay the stories of of where they're where they're sourcing their produce and be willing to kind of charge what they need to charge to make it a, you know, a good financial proposition. I think that's – there's been kind of murmurings about more of that happening over the last kind of few weeks and that's – I think that'll be a really positive thing because, I don't know, it's – um it's, yeah, like chefs and restaurants are kind of the link between society and food producers. We're, we're in a fairly isolated area here, and we're not—you know—we're not always um, connected in that way. So, you know, at their best, I think um, only good things come from that relationship, and that's kind of a, a rare thing to find. So, like restaurants that support regenerative farmers, creative a flow on positive effect to humans and environments in, in rural areas. And, you know, the restaurants get benefit um, with the best freshest produce and they get to tell that story and educate their customers. And so if we can get rid of some of the greenwash that kind of invariably occurs on, on both side of the coin and, and, um, and people are, are transparent and kind of develop those relationships more closely on the other side of this, um, I think that'll be that'll be really positive for, for everyone, for the for the customers and the restaurants and the producers. Um, I'm not sure if that's answered your question, but yeah, I think that's um, yeah. It has been a little bit of a, a, a problem in in Sydney that disconnect with food. I think the Sydney bubble is kind of a real problem, and and some of the chefs and restaurants have been doing a great job bursting that bubble, like leading up to what's happened so if that just continues and gathers pace then that will be a really good thing
1: well i'm very much looking forward to experiencing your wild honeycomb in restaurants as they open up again um mate (laughs) really appreciate you sharing some time with us and um and some fascinating knowledge on bees um i think we need to chat again down the line actually i need to find out more about what you do because it's bloody amazing um thanks again mate and uh keep in touch
0: Yeah, thanks, mate. Thanks for having me and and thanks for having some some producers on the show. I've really enjoyed the podcast. So, yeah, keep it up. Thanks again.
1: This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram. At Deep in the Weeds Podcast, or email us at podcast at deepentheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.